Hello, and welcome to this month's podcast from the Archimedes section of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. This is probably the only podcast that directly answers your clinical questions, or at least directly answers the questions that you have raised clinically using your own words. For those of you that don't know, the Archimedes section is the evidence-based bit of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood, which every month brings in readers' clinical questions and their attempts to answer them using an evidence-based medicine framework. They put the questions together very clearly in a PICO format, then go out and search the literature, bring that together, appraise that literature, and then put it together in one place with clinical bottom lines. The really important thing about our papers in the Archimedes section is that they don't ever end with more research is needed and refuse to tell you what to do. The authors have to come to some conclusion, even if that conclusion is a little bit woolly. Now, in this podcast, we have two critically appraised questions, one on the treatment of cytomegalovirus, or CMV as I'll be calling it from now, infection in neonates, and the other one on the use of subcutaneous fluids for dehydration in children. We also have a plea about an approach to journal clubs. Now because it really matters to me, let me start by telling you a story. Is your journal club really just an exercise in literary criticism? Have you ever been to a journal club and have that slight suspicion that what you are addressing isn't quite on target? Ever considered if journal club might not actually be a scientific pursuit? Now, my comment on this comes from some workers, an editor at the archives and other journals, a commentator on papers, a researcher of some sorts, and a reader and user of the medical literature and an attender of many journal clubs. And I wonder if often we really do think straight about studies. I mean, for instance, the journal article is a summary of a scientific study, and it might be crushed down to 2,000 or maybe maybe 3,000 words. Beneath this, there might be a full study report that might be 5,000 or 6,000 words long. Below that are the case report forms, the data extraction elements that sit below it that you could go to, and below all that are the actual experiences of the patients that underpin it all. Now, when most of us go to journal clubs or attend them either in real life or maybe virtually via Twitter and the ADC underscore JC journal club that we run every month, I think we often fall into the habit of critiquing the paper as it is written. That is, the way that the story is being told, the phraseology, the descriptors used, the presence or absence of certain reported elements or the way that they're reported. I think we may often be accepted of a well-crafted paper, one written in in, in flowing and, and easily read English, than one that might be equally good but poorly put together with clumsy idiomatic phrases and jags and bits missing out. Do our negative reflections on studies really focus on the scientific problems with that study or do we actually address the report itself? In that setting, is a journal club really any more than just literary criticism with a scientific shrink wrapper? Anyway, now I've got that off my chest, I'll actually move on to something a bit more substantial. 
I'm sure, like Dilshad Marker and others from the Luton Hospital in, in the UK, we've all been in the situation of having a small child, an 18-month-old, in their situation, who's got protracted diarrhoea and vomiting and is unable to tolerate oral rehydration therapy. Moving in with a nasogastric tube meets a stiff resistance, not uncommon from an 18-month-old, but, but really stiff resistance from both the 18-month-old and their parents, and so you move reluctantly to IV treatment. However, this is a well-covered 18-month-old, and it takes three attempts before an IV is finally and rather precariously sighted. As you sigh and take in the baleful stares of the parents, you wonder about subcutaneous fluids. They went off, they searched three different databases, they dragged out 30 potential articles and scoured through them to get down only to three studies that are relevant to this situation. As you might well know, um, subcutaneous fluids are used quite a lot in adult palliative care and it's been trialled in geriatric patients and shown to be as good if not slightly better than IV fluids. What you might not know is in the 40s and 50s, back when paediatrics probably wasn't really a speciality, subcutaneous fluids were widely used in children as well. I guess this was before the time when small, flexible IV um, placements were available. Anyway, getting back on topic, the studies that they managed to find were one RCT, but that was of subcutaneous fluids uh, assisted by recombinant hydronidase, but sponsored by the study manufacturer, and that trial had 148 patients in it, and then two cohorts of 51 and 36 patients where they'd studied the outcomes when the children had had subcutaneous fluids. What they showed was that the use of subcutaneous fluids was non-inferior, that is probably as good as, if not maybe a bit better, than the use of IV fluids, and though everybody got a local reaction as the fluids were going in, nobody got serious side effects. However, the authors note that that's a very small number to say that this is definitely safe and doesn't have any serious side effects. And whilst it might be that using subcutaneous fluids, maybe with recombinant hyronidase, is the way forward if you can't get an IV, it's certainly not definitely as good as IV fluids. What the authors have also done is put in a link there to a video showing how to do it. Um, so if you're interested and intrigued, obviously read the full article, but also go and look at the video. The other clinical question this month comes from Amanda Gui and friends at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. They have received an invitation to consult on a three-day-old baby whose mum had a CMV illness in her pregnancy, seroconverting at 11 weeks of gestation. The baby itself is extremely well, with clinically no organomegaly, but a hearing test in the newborn screening programme confirms bilateral hearing loss, and CMV-PCR of the urine shows evidence of congenital CMV infection. Given that this child has some symptoms but isn't really unwell, should they be treated with antivirals? Well, the team went away and searched extensively, contacting authors for extra details at times, and pulled out of 222 possible articles, nine studies, which included six RCTs, examining seven different types of treatment regime for gancyclovir or variants of gancyclovir. The studies treated them from between two weeks to one year in duration, 
Some of them were in symptomatic infants. Some of them were in asymptomatic infants. Some of them were symptomatic with and without CNS involvement. And they had slightly different starting times, whether they were within or after the three-month period. It's a really complicated but well-written story, and it's worth reading this one in great detail about the various things that were looked at, examined and pulled out. And the bottom lines are not entirely clear, but they do seem to indicate that in newborns who've got CNS involvement, the best treatment seems to come from six weeks of gancyclovir treatment, followed up with ongoing treatment, maybe up to a year of age, with prolonged antivirals. It's probably the case that there are benefits for those who are asymptomatic and symptomatic but only caught later on, after that first few days of life, but that's a little bit less clear. One thing that is, has emerged from this enormous amount of data that's been pulled together, despite the differences, is that antiviral treatment doesn't really have a clear benefit on CMV-related hepatitis, thrombocytopenia or chorioretinitis but it may improve things with hearing and neurodevelopmental outcome at up to one year of age. So, that's the Archimedes for this month. We look forward to receiving your clinical questions. Please do send them in. Send them in at an early stage if you're not sure about them. The instructions to authors are on the website. I am encouraging you to send them in despite knowing that like all journal submissions, not everything that comes in that is of a moderate quality will be published. We do really only select the best quality ones to go into our comedies, but we try to be very supportive to bring you along and also give you good places to share your work in other ways instead, even if you're not selected for publication. As always, comments are very welcome on this or any of the other podcasts on our Twitter feed or on our Facebook page. Until next month, thank you very much for listening. 